Good morning, everybody. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we consider the wonderful works of your hands in the year that has gone by, we give you thanks and praise. And we look forward to how you will work uh, in us and through us in the year ahead, changing us for the sake of your glory. We ask that you would be doing that work even now as we read and hear from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes a person needs to be convinced that they don't believe in God so that they can truly believe in him. Think about that for a moment. Sometimes a person needs to be convinced that they don't believe God or believe in him so that they can truly come to a place where they believe him or believe in him. Now when I say that, some of you will hear it and think that's quite a bit presumptuous. Others of us have seen it to be true, maybe even in our own lives. A person thinks they know God, but they really don't. And this is evidenced in the fact that they have a clear misunderstanding in how God saves or how God works, or there's a clear disjunction between the stated belief in God and the desire to follow him and what's actually happening in a person's life. Sometimes people need to be convinced that they don't believe so that they can truly believe. This is particularly true in a culture that has a generally positive association with the person of God or with being a Christian. Because it's easy to believe or to say that you believe in God and his son, the Lord Jesus, in that it's easy to recognize their existence or even their importance. But it's something entirely different to believe in God as he presents himself. Sometimes a person needs to be convinced that they don't truly believe in God so that they can truly believe in him. I wonder if that's you. I certainly don't know all the ins and outs about your daily life or what you believe about God, but I imagine that there are some even in the room today to which this could be the case. This is certainly the case with a number of people that Jesus interacted with. And we find one such example in John chapter 5 as Jesus engages the religious leaders of his day in their unbelief. And so I want to ask you to turn with me to John chapter 5, verses 30 and onward. Today we pick up a series that we began in the fall called Life Giver through John 1 through 7. And we see that Jesus is engaging people in a variety of ways, but he's showing them one consistent reality. That belief in him as the Son of God leads to their eternal life. And so let's read together John chapter 5, starting at verse 30. Jesus is speaking directly to the Pharisees, and this is what he says. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. 
Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you might be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do you not think, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father? There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, and as he is, he's trying to accomplish something. And the question that we ask right off the bat as we read this text is, what is he trying to accomplish? Is he trying to simply persuade them of the good reasons why they should believe in him? Or is he trying to clarify the nature and the reasons for their unbelief? With hopes and desires then that they will believe. I think he's doing the latter. That he's speaking to the reasons for their unbelief, and he's saying something about the human condition. <laughs> he's saying something about their human condition, and he's saying something about our human condition. And when we stop to examine it, we see that what Jesus is getting at here by the obstacles, and by one particular obstacle to belief, is an obstacle for every single person in the room today. It's an obstacle for me, <laughs> and it's an obstacle for you. But before we get there, consider with me the nature of testimony. When you look at the first half of this section of John and the words that are being used, you see that Jesus has just made an incredible claim in the previous section. He claims as clearly as he can claim it that he is the Son of God. And if he's the Son of God, then he's God. And as God... The Father has given him the right to both judge and to give eternal life. And immediately upon making this claim, the skepticism arises, the authorities begin to address him, and the language changes. The language moves to the language of a trial. But in this trial, Jesus is not the judge. Jesus is the one 
who is being questioned. And so if you just glance with me at verse 30 and on, you see this by the words that are being used. In verse 30, you see the word judge and judgment. And in verse 31, witness and testimony. In verse 32, witness and testimony. In verse 33 and 34, witness and testimony. And witness and testimony and testimony and witness. And accuser and accusing. And, and on down the line. What's happening here? This is the language of a courtroom. And to bear witness or to give testimony means that a person states clearly what they have seen or heard or experienced firsthand to try to get to the truth. Jesus is testifying to what he has seen, to what he's heard and what he knows so that they might believe and have life in him. And he gives them all of the obvious reasons why they should believe as he leads to the seeds of their unbelief. So why should they believe? Well, the whole first five chapters of John has been leading to that, and he summarizes it with just two very simple uh, witnesses. He recognizes, of course, in verse 31, that if he bears witness alone, that that testimony is not valid. You know that to be true. Some of you have sat on jury duty before. You've been in a court. You've heard witnesses testify. And if you haven't, I'm sure that if you're of a certain age in the room, all of you have seen at least one, probably many episodes of Law and Order. And you know that the quality of the testimony is of vital importance to leading or verifying something as fact. And so he lists the testimony of two others outside of himself. John the Baptist and God the Father himself. The testimony of John, seen in verses 33 through 35, says that you sent for John, he's borne witness to the truth. Verse 35, he was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. This, of course, makes us recall way back at the very beginning of this gospel in chapter 1, John the Baptist, who came as the forerunner to Jesus. His ministry was large. He drew hundreds of people, and he was celebrated for a while. Jesus calls him the burning and shining light because the true light was coming into the world to shine light into the darkness. And John was the forerunner. He was the one that pointed to the greater light that was coming behind him. So Jesus validates his ministry again and says specifically he does so, so that those who follow John might be saved. <laughs> that's a solid testimony. But there's a testimony that's even greater. He calls on the impeccable witness to take the stand. The witness who will stand up under any scrutiny or inspection or pressure. The witness whose character is flawless. Jesus appeals to the testimony of God the Father himself. And he says in verse 36, The testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the words that the Father has given, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. 
And so you might summarize in this first section, Jesus is calling upon the witness of his father as something like this. Not my will, but God's will. Not my works, but God's works. Not my testimony, but God's testimony. And he's giving them compelling reasons why they should believe that he is the son of God. And this falls right in line with the purpose of the book. Do you remember the purpose of the Gospel of John? It's been a little while since we've been there. Stated as clearly as it can be in John 20, verse 31. It says, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, have life in his name. And so despite all of these solid reasons that Jesus gives, and despite the first five chapters of really solid reasons, they still don't believe. They think they believe God and are following him, but they don't believe in Jesus. And so, in fact, they truly do not believe in God. Sometimes a person needs to be convinced that they don't believe in God, (laughs) so that they can truly believe in him. And so why don't they believe? And what are some of the obstacles that stand in the way for us to believing? Jesus turns the tables on them, and he gives them a string of indicting reasons for their unbelief. And I see at least five. I know there are more, but we'll address five fairly quickly in our remaining time. Look with me at verse 37. The first indictment toward them for their unbelief is found in that they have not heard the voice of God nor seen his form. Unlike Moses, who the Jews follow, they have not heard the voice of God. And now the voice of God is speaking in their very midst and they still do not hear it. Unlike their forefather, Jacob. Jacob, who is considered to be the father of Israel. They have not seen God's form. Jacob saw God's form. He wrestled with God. And now the very form of God stands before them in the person of Jesus. And they still don't see it. And so it stands to reason that they are not truly part of Jacob's family nor truly following Moses. That's indictment number one. And Jesus starts to move now from the external and starts to narrow in with indictment number two. He says that they do not have his word abiding in them. Verse 38 says just that. The Old Testament has many wonderful examples of the word of God abiding in men and women in their hearts and in their minds, and what that leads them toward. Joshua, David, Solomon, and on and on. God's word is how he reveals his desires. It's the lamp. It provides comfort. It imparts wisdom. And John chapter 1 tells us that when Jesus came into the world, that he was the living word who came to dwell among them. God's chief revelation of himself and his works and his ways to humankind. 
And if they had the word abiding in them, all of the Old Testament, then they would recognize the living word who stands even among them. And so he says in verse 39 that the scriptures, being the Old Testament, bear witness about me. In verses 45 and 46, that Moses is actually their accuser because Moses, the great Moses, as the divinely inspired human author of the first five books of the Bible, points to Jesus. And if they knew the words of Moses truly, they would see Jesus before them. Now we could spend all kinds of time on the implications of this. That the Old Testament, from its beginning is all leading toward the coming of the Son of God on earth. And at the very least, we say, praise God. Praise God that he reveals his plan of salvation centuries before Jesus actually comes. And this means, of course, that we don't unhitch from the Old Testament simply thinking that it's for a different time and a different era. It means that we don't relegate the Old Testament to second-class scripture that's antiquated in its approach. It means that Jews and Gentiles today have access to Jesus through the Word of God, both Old Testament and New Testament, and that they can see him clearly in it if they are having the Word abide in them. But these Pharisees don't. And it is a reason for their unbelief. Indictment number three. Verse 39 indicates that they wrongly think that they've already obtained eternal life. Look at it with me. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Jesus is moving now from the external down to the internal. <laughs> he's penetrated the topsoil of the soul, and he's on that layer underneath. He's in the clay. <laughs> and he's getting closer to the center, but he's not there yet. In this context, these believers or these Pharisees think that they have eternal life because of what they have in the Old Testament, but they're mistaken because they don't see Jesus in it. Today, I think it's a bit different, but the core reason for unbelief is the same. People think that they will be saved. Many wrongly believe that eternal life will be theirs. And there's all kinds of reasons for this in all kinds of ways that we could describe it. One reason for this is that typically for all of us, we don't grasp the egregious nature of our sin, very plainly. Another reason for this is that some, some want to remain blissfully ignorant to the details of God's works and his ways. It's like the person who drives the car that starts making that knocking noise, and they say, uh, I'm sure it'll be fine. If I just continue to drive a little bit longer and not get it checked out, I can remain blissfully ignorant. And you know what? It'll probably just go away. I hope it turns out all right. So too, some people remain blissfully ignorant about God. 
I don't want to look too closely because I don't know what I'll see if I do. And if I look too closely, then I might come to realize that I don't actually have the thing that I think I have, eternal life. And so I just hope that it turns out okay. Others wrongly think that they have eternal life because they take parts of the Bible's description of God, but not the entirety of the description. So they say, well, God is a loving God and he saves people, and this is very true. But at the same time, they don't want to reckon with the idea of God's holiness or God's justice. Some simply just don't want to think about the hard realities of life. Death. Eternity. Because when you think about those, it's difficult at times for you. And so what do we do? What do we do with the fact that some wrongly believe they have eternal life? Well, the first thing we do is to make sure that we are not one of those who wrongly believe that we have eternal life. That we don't live blissfully ignorant or that we don't just think that everything is going to work out okay by the fact that you're even here today is an indication that you are not interested in that way of life. So how do you know for sure? How do you know for sure if, that you are not one of the people that needs to be convinced that you don't believe so that you do believe? <laughs> well, it starts with understanding the core of the gospel very clearly. And that's what Jesus is trying to get to them. That placing your faith in Jesus as the Son of God to forgive you of your sins gives you new life and everlasting life. That's the core of it. And if you trust in him or put your faith in him, it's yours and you can be certain. But no, but no, please, that faith is not just an intellectual assent to the reality of this happening. That faith inherently includes things like turning from your sin and following the Savior for the rest of your days. And then secondly, what do we do? Well, we patiently and persistently share this gospel with others because we love them, because we want nobody to be under the false illusion that they are saved if they're not truly saved, if they don't know Jesus as the Son of God or they don't trust him as their Savior. And this is an indictment against these leaders and against some of us. It's a reason for unbelief. Indictment number four, we see in verse 40. Look at it with me. They don't want to come to Jesus. It says, the scriptures bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You refuse Simply put, another way to state that is, you don't want to. <laughs> it's there, you don't want to come to me. I used to um, underestimate, for the longest time, I would underestimate the power of our personal desire. The power of what we want. <laughs> but I don't do that any longer. Because our desires, my friends, are powerful things. And some of the conversations I've had in my office over the last number of years illustrates that to be true, that people have done things that they would have never thought about doing at another season of their life simply based on their desire. I want another drink. 
I want to be the one who plays by my own rules. I want to hurt that person. I want to leave my spouse because I'm bored in my marriage. And on and on and on. The wants are so strong. But if you want God, he will give himself to you through his son. Jesus is getting really deep now. Deep down inside the soul. He's moved from the external, past the topsoil, past the clay, into the core of our desires. But why? The question is why don't we want to come to him of our own accord? And he gives the answer in verses 43 and verse 44. Look at it with me. He says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? The answer as to why we don't want to believe is because we seek glory from one another. How can you believe? When that's the case, you can't, is what Jesus says. Belief in Jesus as the Son of God is impossible if the most important thing in your life is the glory given to you by other people. The seed of our unbelief, he says, is our desire for human glory. This is one of the biggest obstacles that we have. You don't want Jesus because you want to be the center of the world. You want to be the center of attention. You don't want Jesus because you want glory for yourself, not glory for God or not glory that comes from God. You don't want to believe in Jesus because you want to be self-sufficient because that's what competent, tough people do, and in your self-sufficiency, that is recognized, and you receive glory. You don't want to believe in Jesus because you want to be lifted up, because you want to be praised, because you want to be exalted or admired or adored. And when that desire takes its root within you and becomes predominant, it is impossible to yield to him as the Son of God. Now let's be clear. We are not talking about being liked by people. Everybody wants to be liked by people. That's okay. We're not talking about being loved by people. Everybody wants to be loved, and that's okay. But what we're talking about here is the ever-present longing, the craving the lasting motivator of recognition from people instead of from God. Now, some of you might say, Pastor Nick, I don't know if that's my issue. But when you stop to think about it, 
And you stop to think about how many of your actions on a day in and day out basis are motivated by your desire for glory. <laughs> then you start to see that not only is this your issue, <laughs> it's my issue. <laughs> and but for the grace of God, it is the issue for every single person. And Jesus says that this is a primary reason for unbelief. Now we could give a lot of examples or illustrations of how this plays itself out or what this looks like. Here's just one that I found interesting and somewhat surprising. According to a 2011 study reported in USA Today entitled, Sex, Booze, or Money Just Can't Compare to a Jolt of Self-Esteem. Brad Bushman, the lead author of the study, said we looked at things that college students love and they love self-esteem more. The researchers, these two separate studies of 282 students from Ohio and from New York that measured the students' desire for a number of goals that college students have. Receiving praise, engaging in sex, drinking alcohol, getting a paycheck, eating their favorite food, or seeing their best friend. And the results pointed to one, one, one clear desire. University students wanted experiences that would help them boost their self-esteem, such as receiving a compliment or getting a good grade. Speaking of the excessive need to be praised, the researcher said this, In general, I think self-esteem, though it feels good for the individual, is harmful to society, especially if it goes over the top and becomes Narcissism. Or take, for example, this quotation about the nature of glory, human glory and celebrity, which comes with human glory, and just think to yourself, wondering what year this might have been written. The quotation is this, under the rules of contemporary society, nobody, not even God, can afford to offend the media. It is all very well to be rich or talented or beautiful or brave, but unless one is known to be rich or talented or beautiful or brave, one cannot be a celebrity. And if one isn't a celebrity, one might as well be dead. Written 30 years ago for Harper's Magazine. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God, Jesus asks? You can't. The seed of our unbelief is our desire for human glory. But seeking God's glory leads to belief in his Son. The seed of our unbelief is the desire for human glory, but seeking God's glory, or the glory that only comes from him, is the seed that leads us to belief in his son. And verse 43 tells us how this happens. It says, I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me, but if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Well, why would they receive one whose testimony is self-serving? Well, they would receive him because he's just like us. He doesn't make us feel bad about ourselves. 
we can continue on our pursuit and our pursuits of even glory seeking as he does his. But when you're confronted with the perfection of Jesus, we have to look in the mirror and say, we are not like him. And this either makes us angry or it makes us feel bad about ourselves or it makes us humble. And so this is why everywhere Jesus seemed to go, the broken people were lifted up and the proud people rejected him because they were seeking glory from people. We're down in the depths now. Doing some self-examination about the struggles of our soul. Jesus has brought us all the way from the external down to the bedrock of what's happening on the inside right here. And some of you at this point might be asking the questions, well, why can't we have both? Why can't we have glory from humans while still trusting in Jesus at the same time? I want both. I see examples of people who I think want both and have both, maybe I could be one of those who just toe the line so tightly that I just don't tip over to the one side. Why can't I have both glory and seek glory from people and the glory that comes from trusting Jesus at the same time? There are a lot of answers. I'll give just very th- three very briefly. Number one, because the first reason why glory seeking is contradictory to the gospel is because faith by its very nature, gives all the glory to God and expects none back in return. That's the nature of faith. Romans chapter 4, verse 20 says that Abraham grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. The second reason why glory seeking is contradictory to the gospel is that humility is necessary to repent. <laughs> To repent means that you admit your sin to God and you turn away from that sin. It's a necessary part of faith. Faith and repentance go hand in hand. True faith and repentance are inextricably linked. And to be repentant unavoidably means that you will be brought low. That you recognize your wrongs, your inadequacies, your sins... And to be brought low and recognize those things is the exact opposite of being glorified, isn't it? And so they're contradictory to each other. They're incompatible in that sense. And thirdly, a life of faith will inevitably lead you to a place where you will receive some level of scorn from the world around you. But your body... And soul will be glorified in eternity. To follow Jesus for the rest of your days means necessarily that you won't have all the glory that you desire here on earth. (laughs) That at times you will have the exact opposite. But for the Christian, this life is not the place for glory. The next one is. And God is the only one who gives it. In his book, What God Thinks When I Fail... Stephen Roy tells of a fictional story of a young violinist who lived in London many years ago. And although he was a superb musician, 
he was unwilling to give concerts. And after much scrutiny, he finally agreed to perform at the largest concert hall in London, England. And the young violinist came onto the stage that night, and he sat alone on a stool. And he played for an hour and a half. No music in front of him. No orchestra behind him. Just an hour and a half of beautiful violin music. And after 10 minutes or so, the critics put down their pens and their notepads, and they begin to listen with everybody else. And as he worked through the different pieces and the concert came to its conclusion, the audience stood and roared and give a great thundering applause, and they would not stop. But the young violinist didn't acknowledge the applause. He just peered out into the audience as if he was looking for something or someone. And then, when he finally found what he was looking for, relief came over his face. He began to acknowledge the cheers as their time ended. And after the concert, the critics went backstage to interview the young violinist, and they said, you were wonderful. But one question, why did it take so long for you to acknowledge the applause and the gratitude of all those who were in your hearing? And the young violinist took a deep breath and he answered, you know, I was really afraid of playing here tonight, but I felt like it was something that I had to do. And then tonight, just before I came on stage, I received word that my master teacher would be in the audience. And throughout the concert, I tried to look for him, but I could not find him. And after it finished, I just had to know. I was so eager to find my teacher. I needed to know what he thought of my playing. And so I looked and I looked more intently into the audience than before until I finally found him because that was all that mattered to me. Finally, I saw him sitting high in the balcony. He was standing and applauding and had a large smile on his face. And after seeing him, I was finally able to relax. And I said to myself, if the master is pleased with what I've done, then everything else is okay. The seed of our unbelief is our desire for human glory. But the seeking of glory that only comes from God leads to our belief in his son. May God root out all the seeds of our unbelief because we seek glory from people. May he replace it with an intense desire to receive his approval, his glory, his pleasure that comes from him through his son as we trust him. And may we abide in that son and the benefit of joy that comes by believing in him. Friends, let's pray together and ask God to enact this very thing among us. Father, today we 
thank you for our identifying for us some of the depths of the struggles of our soul, the seeds of our unbelief, the desires that are embedded in our human experience to receive glory in this life and its consequences for the next. Today, Father, I pray if there's any among us who today walked in thinking they truly believed but are now at a place where they realize that they didn't, that belief in the Son, Jesus, would be theirs. What once was a mistaken identity is now a joyful embrace and trust. Father, as we turn our attention to the Lord's table and we celebrate the very belief that Jesus is talking about here, as we take the bread and the cup, we give you thanks and praise that the body has been broken on our behalf, that the blood has been shed to forgive us of our sins, that we might enjoy this new life right now and forever. Help us in this abiding action of faith, we pray. Amen.